around about this time last year, we started a journey in the book of uh, Joshua. And it's something that we try to do uh, each year in Christ Church. We look at something in the Old Testament, we look at something in the New Testament, uh, and we look at uh, Christmas and Easter, and then we look at some, uh, some series, some theological ideas, and some practical ideas. I think it's really important for us to understand that journey of the Old Testament. We can't get to Jesus without working out what's gone on before and why it has relevance to the story of Jesus. Uh, back in uh, the book of Joshua, uh, we, we saw that God's people were on this ongoing work of identifying themselves. And now we come to Judges. It's, the, it's really the next stage on from Joshua. If you weren't part of the church way back then, all of the talks on uh, Joshua are available online. You can listen to them ahead of time. The other thing that I want to just mention, the book of Judges is a big book. Uh, and there's no chance that we're going to be able to read everything that we're going to be covering on a Sunday. And therefore, what we want to do is we want to get out to you on a regular basis the big chunks of the text that we're going to be looking at on the Sunday coming. We're going to use social media and, and uh, email and all of that kind of thing. If you want to really dig in, I would really encourage you, read the text ahead of the Sunday, uh, and you can, you can get a picture of, of where we're going. So, we're in the early part of Joshua, of Judges. We're in the early part of Judges, although Joshua is involved, as you've already noticed from the reading. Um, and Judges um, chapter 2 we're jumping into, which perhaps you might think, that's a little bit unusual to start a book by starting at chapter 2. I don't know whether uh, any of you, when you were doing uh, O-levels or GCSEs or A-levels or whatever it might be, even maybe some university uh, studies, uh, some of you have probably used Sparknotes. Um, not a single knot. Okay. Right. There we go. Spark notes are small books which kind of bring together the thread, the idea, the, the kind of the outline, the key themes the, of a piece of literature or, a, or a, they actually now, they're now doing maths and science and history and all of that kind of thing. You all must be pretty much the same as me, that you didn't revise, <laughs> but they're brilliant for revising, apparently. I never used them, um, although I was never bright enough to do anything like English literature. Um, but Sparknotes was that way of kind of bringing together the whole of the journey of a book into a much shorter book so that you can grab a hold of it. Chapter 2 of the book of Judges is kind of like the Bible's spark notes for the whole of the rest of the book. Chapter 1 starts like this. Uh, Judges, chapter 1, verse 1, after the death of Joshua. That's how chapter 1 starts. Chapter 2, Joshua's back alive. <laughs> Do you see that? And so I want us firstly to treat this next few minutes as a way of orientating ourselves, preparing ourselves for the whole of the journey of Judges. It kind of tells us in Sparknotes form 
What's actually going on? What's actually happening? So following on from the descendants, what God says to His people is, I have prepared for you a land. It's a land which I promised to your ancestors. Then you went into Egypt to be saved originally from famine. You ended up in slavery, and from that absolutely hopeless place, I brought you out and sent you to the land. You didn't believe that you could take the land, and so for 40 years you walked around the wilderness, and now through the book of Joshua and through the faith of Joshua and Caleb leading the people, you are now ready to go into the land. And that's what we saw in, Joshua, in the book of Joshua. They go into the land. Now, the reality is that they go into the land through Joshua and judges us about what happens when they get into the land. What is God saying to His people? And why is it relevant for us today? He's saying, you are my people in this world. You are there to be representatives of me. You are there to shine the light of the glory of Yahweh, the God who you worship, into this world. You are to be my witness. And the way that you are to be my witness is to go into that place and create a kingdom which represents me, a kingdom of grace and goodness and mercy and righteousness in the faith, in the face of a brutal, ruthless world, a horrible world, a world of oppression and the most awful, grotesque patterns of behavior, child sacrifice, uh, complete horrors are going on in the world. And God says, go into this land, get rid of that, and be a shining example of a kingdom which reflects me. That is a key biblical theme. If you want to understand what the Bible is about, one of the key things it's about is about building a kingdom which is righteous and good. God is saying to the world, I, I created this world for you to live in, to live in my kingdom, my domain, but you rejected it. Therefore, the whole of the rest of the journey of the Bible is about the reestablishment of that kingdom. And this is part of the journey. So go and create this kingdom in this brutal, ruthless world. I want you to understand, because this is a huge claim, we are no less brutal now than back in that day. Humanity has not changed. We are no less brutal. Since 9-11, I read in a news article this morning, there has been 800,000 people killed in the wars just in the Middle East. 335,000 of those are civilians. 21 million men, women, and children have had to flee their homes. We do it now in a way which is off the scale compared to the Old Testament. We might be offended by the, we will be offended 
by some of the stuff that goes on in Judges as we take this journey. But do not lose sight of the fact that we are at least as bad and probably worse. We just don't get our hands dirty anymore with swords and stabbings and all the rest of it on a kind of country scale. We do it with drones and obliterate whole groups of people. We live in a ruthless, horrible, awful world. And when we look at, out at that, I am not making at all any political statement here. I'm saying this is the reality of the world that we live in, and therefore, don't we yearn for a better place? Doesn't our heart desperately say, I want a better place than this? Yeah, that's what we're trying to engineer all the way along. We're trying to create this better world. We have, we have different views, we have different political perspectives, but we want a better world. The message of the Bible, the message of the gospel in Jesus is that that is not some fantasy hope. That is where God is taking us. But we cannot see the hope until we look at the horror. And that's part of the book of Judges. This is not pie in the sky. This is reality. And so we come now, let's have our reading. Joshua chapter 2 and verse 6. We're going to start at verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived them, and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Everything seems to be going well. One of the things that we've see, we see in uh, the earlier part of the Bible, we see that God says, when you go into the land, this is how we didn't actually cover this in the back end of the book of Joshua. This is how the land is to be divided up. And now we see God's people are going to the inheritance. What is an inheritance? <laughs> An inheritance is something that is given to you by somebody who has gone before. That's what an inheritance is. And God is saying, I've gone before you, and therefore this is the land that I have given to you. And so God's people, under Joshua, they go into the land and they take possession of the land. It's, a, it's almost, you can imagine, a map, a geography of the land of Canaan. It's broken up and the different tribes of Israel go and they take possession of that land. And the people, look at this, this is great news. It is going so, so well, it seems. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. Joshua is like this rock. He's, he's kind of an anchor. He holds it together. Joshua is this figurehead, and while he's there, and while the elders who are with him, and the people who have experienced the hand of God, they're faithful. But now we come in the next stage to a crisis. And it is more than a crisis of the death of a man. It is a crisis of faith. I want you to consider this in a very personal way. I want, you to, I want to ask the question, what holds our faith in place? 
Is it the fact that we're part of a family that believes? Is it because of our heritage? Is it what is it? Because here we have God's people in the next section. Look at this. Verse 8. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath. Timnath Haraz in the hill country of Ephraim north of Mount Gash. After that, the whole generation had been gathered to, after that, sorry, let me read that again. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lords and served the Baals. See that? What a tragedy. One generation difference. A generation who had grown up associated and related to those who had gone through the experiences alongside Joshua. They had crossed the river They had seen God's hand. They had seen the hand of God working in incredible ways. They had experienced it, but the next generation had not experienced it. That raises a huge question, doesn't it? What has gone on there? This is one generation. This is, is, for those who are old enough, this is the equivalent of our children or our nephews and nieces not knowing and turning away. What has gone on? I think there are two things which are critical here. First, it's this. They had no real experience of God. They had not truly experienced God. The Christian faith, true faith in this living God, depends on true experience of that God. What does that mean? What does experience mean? Why did this generation, who followed on from the generation who'd crossed into the land, why did they not experience it? I think it's one of two things. It's either the generation who had gone before did not communicate it with a passion and a love which said, this is the best thing that you can ever know and I will pass it down to you. I don't believe that is actually the case. I think the next generation shut their ears to everything that had been said. It's my father going on again about that cross in the Jordan. I'm fed up. Every time we sit down, he goes on about crossing the Jordan. It's like all of that stuff back there is way more important than what's going on now. And what have they missed? It's not about the crossing of the Jordan that's important. It's not about the events of the past that's important. It's about knowing the God of the events of the past and opening our ears to the events of the past. Remembering what has been is critical 
and embracing in our remembrance what has been is critical for us to experience God. Jesus put it like this. When He handed out bread and when He handed out wine, He said, I want you to remember that this is my body and this is my blood. I want you to remember. I want you to drive it into your thinking. You don't have to have been at the crucifixion and the resurrection to truly experience me. You don't have to have been there. But if you don't enter into remembering in this way, you will not hold on to a faith which you claim. You will not. You will drift because you might be listening, but your ears are shut. And you're drifting away and you are not truly embracing and experiencing this God. Why do we sing songs about the death and resurrection of Jesus? Why do we sing songs which in our 21st century sensitivities are really uncomfortable? Songs about blood and the shedding of blood and sacrifice. Why do we sing songs like that? Because unless we embrace the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, unless we remember it as He's called us to do, unless we repeat it to ourselves so that it shapes our thinking, we will not experience that Jesus. We will not experience that God. And I'll guarantee if we do not experience that God, we are nowhere. You might be sat here thinking, I just, man, I just haven't got that experience. I just so wish that I had that experience. I would say two things. Firstly, if you do not know that Jesus, then he is a prayer of commitment away. That's all. That is a prayer of commitment away to experience Him. Secondly, if you have already committed to that Jesus and you feel, feel, still feel as though I am not experiencing Jesus in that way, then let me say I am really encouraged by that because you are desperately seeking the very best of things. And a lot of our Christian journey is about yearning for something that we feel that we don't have. If you want it, if you're hoping for it, if you're looking for it, if you're desperate for it, it's because God has placed that desire in your heart. You have no capability to want it unless God has done that. So be thankful. Carry on yearning. And carry on seeking the experience of God. A crisis of faith. Secondly, we see it is all about in this case, the, we're going to focus on one key issue. The whole, of the, the whole of the history of humanity rests on three things and our attitude towards them. Power. Wealth or money. And sex. Those three things. 
our attitude towards those three things has to be shaped by the God who we worship. So God's people go into this land, and what do we see? There is a crisis in their sexual attitudes. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook Him and served Baal and the Ashtaroths. In His anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist. What a terrible situation. Why am I saying that, that is, they are absolutely reshaped in their thinking about sex? Baal? is a God, and that the Ashtoreths are his concubines. And the worship of Baal and the Ashtoreths is all about the worship and the appeasement of those gods so that the world that we live in might be fertile. Fertile in terms of the reproduction of food and resources. Fertile in terms of the reproduction of us as people. Do you see what that is doing? They are saying that because the God who we serve acts with a sexual intent towards His concubines, we will behave in a way which responds to that and appeases that God with that pattern of behavior. Do you see the difference with the God of the Bible? The God of the Bible, unlike the pagan gods, has no sexual activity. That is mind-blowing. We, we, we kind of say that now and we don't realize the significance of it because we're not surrounded by the Baals or the Ashtoreths. We're not surrounded by the gods of the Greeks and the Romans. But the whole of the pagan god system relied on the sexual activity of the gods being represented by the sexual activity of humanity. And God says when you per pervert and twist your understanding of your sexual identity so that you twist it away from what I have given you, you are in trouble. I wonder what a conversation might have been like. Dale Ralph Davis, if you want to get ahead of this, read Dale Ralph Davis' uh, little book on Judges. Absolutely brilliant. He says, I wonder what the conversation must have been like when they go into Canaan. <laughs> oh, you've got this God, Yahweh, yeah, that's great. I see mighty God, wonderful, that's fantastic. Oh, perfectly happy for you to serve that God. But, but mm, what, about, uh, what about next year's harvest? And what about the promise of children? Why don't you come with me to our high place? where we ensure that we're not really ex excited about the huge cosmic things, we just want next year to be okay. Come up to the high place and there we worship with prostitutes. And then we're faced with how do we, how do we step away from that? Because that is 
far more exciting than the God who has placed us in this place. That is the crisis of the people going into the land of Canaan. An appealing form of worship. Let me put it like this. That issue, our understanding of our sexual identity is absolutely shaped by our understanding of the nature of God. And what is God saying? He's saying this, when you go into this land, you bring a different understanding of sexual identity than the world that is surrounding you. You just create a new identity, an identity which is filled with my righteousness. Let me say, and put my neck on the line here, I would say that sexual identity has always been and will always be a crisis point for God's people in the world in which we live. Because when we take the nature of God away from our understanding of sexual activity, when we take any kind of God-shaped perspective away from that, and we say, I'll just work it out on my own, we lose one of the key, well, the key piece in understanding what it's all about. That's where we are. That's the issue that we face today. We're not worshipping Baals and Ashtoreths. But I read an article, a girl who was just talking about being gaslighted. Some of you don't know what that is. A small percentage of you might do. By a guy who she decided to hook up with on Tinder. I was, I was really disturbed, I'll be honest. Not actually because she was being gaslighted, but because she was talking with such an incredible openness about the normal, natural pattern of behavior which says I'll hook up with a guy on Tinder for a night because I just feel like. And next week it'll be somebody different. And that doesn't matter the bigger issue is that he then ignored me. I'm like, well, what is going on? What are we, how are we shaping our thinking? Is our identity, is our sexual identity subdued to our own created understanding? Or does the God who we worship shape our understanding? Let me, let me take us on a journey of what that means for us today. It means that we will be in crisis if we, if we adopt a non-God-shaped understanding of sexual activity. We will be in crisis. But it also says that the kingdom that Jesus calls us to create is a kingdom which is shaped very differently. We need to live differently. If we are not living differently, we are not shaped by that kingdom's values. That's a big thing, isn't it? We are way back, thousands of years before Jesus, and we've got the same issues as thousands of years after Jesus. Why? Because our identity rests on those three things, power, wealth, and sex. It is the, the, the combination of our identity which shapes us in our understanding of God.
And so what do we see? The fact that God's people go into the land and they do not get rid of the nations that are causing this horrific pattern of behavior, because they do not create this separate identity, we see that God responds in a particular way. What, verse, uh, verse 15, sorry, verse 14. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies and all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. It's like, come on, we're your people. And he says, but my hand is against you to defeat you. Just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. What they hadn't got rid of, what they hadn't shunned, eradicated, became, as we read at the beginning, snares to them. Became snares. Can you see grace in that? I can see profound grace in that. The grace is in verse 15. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them. That if we're going to understand judges, that is grace. How does how how is that grace? It's grace in this way. Because they are God's people, he didn't abandon them. Nor did he leave them comfortable in their sin. He did not leave them comfortable in their sin. One of the experiences of God that we understand as we journey through our faith in Jesus is that great truth. God does not leave us comfortable in our sin, and that is grace. Because if He just abandoned us and said, well, if that's the way you want to go, that's fine. I'll carry on, crack on, do your thing, I'm away the other way. What does he do? What does the experience of God do? He confronts us. He challenges us. He pushes us. He disciplines us. Why? Because he loves us. That's grace. He says, I'm going to leave you in that place, but I'm not going to forget you. I am going to confront you. I'm going to use all of the things that might happen in your life to really challenge you so that you feel that I am defeating you. Why? Because I love you. Paul puts it like this. When he sees the, the kind of the inability of ourselves to do anything in the face of this natural pattern of our own identity, this tendency to go off in the wrong direction, this inability to shun the snares... In Romans chapter 7, verse 21, he says this, So I find this law at work. Do you recognize this? Even though I want to do good, evil is right there with me. He, that's his experience. I want to do good, but evil is right there with me. 
For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. That's where I am. I am not looking at the people in Judges saying, what a shocking bunch, because they failed to get rid of the evil. They failed to clear out the snares. Judges is there to say, that's what we're like. We don't clear out the snares. We don't shun it. Paul says, I look that I want to do good and I don't do good. What is his end? What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Praise be to God in Jesus Christ. That's like, there's grace. Paul's saying, I know the experiences of those people in Judges, that God is never leaving me comfortable in my sin, and I, need, or I don't need to work harder. I need rescuing. That's what I need. I need rescuing. And he turns around and he says, the only way is Jesus. That's my hope. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. That's great, isn't it? As these stories are being told around the campfire, all of the teenagers would probably cheer at Grandad's story because the judges came around and they saved the people from the raiders. (laughs) Yet they would not listen to their judges but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's command. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of the enemies. As long as the judge lived for the Lord, relented because of their groaning under those oppressed and afflicted. But when the judge died, the people returned to the ways even more corrupt than those of the ancestors. That is the story of judges. God raises up a judge. Great news. And as long as the judge is there, we're all going to behave ourselves and we're all, we're all on this mission and we're, we're kind of, we're, we're getting it, we're understanding it. The judge dies and there's carnage. We drift away and we're off and away. And then God raises up another judge. And then God raises up another judge and we drift. What does that say? What does that say to us? Why is this relevant to us today? Because it says this, we need a better judge. We need a better judge than another human being. We need no less than God incarnate to come in and to raise up a kingdom that is following the righteousness and goodness of God in the land. But then he dies like these judges. But then he lives. And the living judge becomes the throne that we look to with hope. Because the judge becomes the king. We need a better judge. That's what the story of Judges reminds us again and again. 
yeah, we've got this kind of spark notes for the book of Judges, but we've got even better, haven't we? We know how the story unfolds. We know that the better judge is Jesus. And we know that the throne is the throne that he is now seated on. 